Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Like dumb. I'm smart, and I want respect. The great and has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, well, we've had our 15 minutes of fame. How was it for you? It was, you know, busy. Because, man, Sam has a lot of Twitter followers. He's like at almost a million. So, So what's up? Welcome. I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. So we were on Sam Harris's Waking Up podcast and... Yeah, experienced Twitter fame. Yeah. Which isn't real fame, I guess. But also serious iTunes fame. As who, someone who <laughs> who lives and dies by the position on the charts. Who just measures my self worth based on where we are on iTunes. I I was pretty pleased with myself. Yeah. If you ever wonder how Tamler's feeling on any given day, look at the philo- top <laughs> philosophy. Sure. Yeah. You know what I did realize, though, is that, um, you know, and we don't have nearly that many Twitter followers as real famous people, but but there gets a point to where uh, it, it is almost meaningless to check Twitter because right. there's so much. And, and people, I don't know what it is now, it defaults everybody into the conversation thread. So when people are kind of fighting amongst themselves and they tag you, like, it just doesn't make sense to have, to, to even have any alerts or anything. Right. Well, there was like a period where our mentions would just be through the roof, but it was like t- three people <laughs> arguing about Sam Harris's view on yeah. Islam, like whether he's Islamophobic or not, like nothing to do with the podcast, nothing to do with, you know, anything, certainly anything about us. Yeah. Uh, now we're back to our normal, normal, humble, humble yeah. selves. You know. obscure lives we're like uh like what is it charlie and flowers for algernon <laughs> like we start out <laughs> really dumb and then we get we get really famous and smart and then go back to just reverting to yeah where we yeah. were before yeah so thanks sam for for having for, or i was thinking like we're a little also like naomi watts <laughs> like we can't this was our ma- this was our masturbatory fantasy and now we've woken up to reality. <laughs> oh, woken up. Very nice. Uh, but Flowers for Algernon is a very, very nice... Uh, we have an intro segment, but Flowers for Algernon is something that might come back up again. Um, yeah. yeah. That's actually a good segue. It was actually a little-known fact. It was based on a Simpsons episode where Homer has a crayon in his brain. So today we're, we're going to do an episode that we, that we owe to our 
Patreon subscribers, our loyal Patreon subscribers. We asked all of our Patreon subscribers to suggest a topic for a listener-selected episode, and then our $5 and up subscribers voted. Well, I don't know why this is taking so long to say. <laughs> they voted in a Patreon poll for this topic, which is intelligence. Yeah. Yep. For the record, you know, because I love our Patreon supporters and all our listeners, we, we prepped for this. We, <laughs> we did. Yeah. We really did. Like, we read uh, a book or almost a whole book in my case. And I, I, I was delving through, through the research. Um, even though I teach it every year for Intro Psych, there's still a lot of, a lot of stuff out there. And it's, it's just one of those topics. It's hard to filter through um, the controversy. So hopefully we'll do it some justice. Yeah, we'll try. And I am really ignorant about all of it. So I will play the role of some of our listeners and just ask questions. But this is a topic I've never looked into. I've never had strong feelings about. So the book that we're talking about is Stuart Ritchie's, what's it called? Intelligence, All That Matters. And he says that a certain group of people, in fact, he says smart people, just kind of don't like to talk about IQ, don't like to talk about intelligence, period. Right. And I am, I guess that makes me smart because that's kind of like how, like, I've never been interested in IQ. I've never, when people talk about it, it always seems, it seems a little nouveau smart. I'll, I'll put it like that. <laughs> yeah. A yeah. little nouveau it smart. Is, it is a sign of your intelligence. So I was going to ask you, they, they, don't, they don't bring it up at your Mensa meetings? Like, I would think that... <laughs> <laughs> that's like a common thought. I, I keep trying to get in there and they just, you know, <laughs> they say my scores are too low. It's just that you have a problem understanding statistics. So, yeah, yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird topic. Um, for If you don't study intelligence or you don't have to learn about it, then it's like a weird thing to bring up. Um, it's almost like the equivalent of like guys talking about their abs in the, in the gym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, which I also don't do. Yeah, and I'll say that we weren't planning on talking about Stuart's book. Stuart sent me an email with uh, with this book. I, I I really like Stuart. I don't know him personally. He's on Twitter. He's a great guy to follow. But really, really, really nice, uh, nicely written book. So we'll put a link to that in our show notes. Yeah, very accessible. Yeah. Well, I don't know if we can put a link to the whole book or we on Amazon. Yeah, we'll put a uh, to the Amazon. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Before we get to that. Um, we always look for an opening segment topic that is a little more lighthearted. It has not been a lighthearted last few weeks. Have I we? was going to say, have we ever had this much trouble either just because of what's out in the media or maybe psychologically we're in a dark place? Like, like we've, we, we were really having trouble. It so, really is. It did feel, I, I think some of the, that sort of, I don't know, there was just this just bad sick feeling like like that after charlottesville that it it just was sort of pervaded everyday life in like even when you weren't talking about it or thinking about it or reading about it it, it was sort of hanging over uh, the 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 week that followed i think and you know you could even see like i was scouring for like funny articles that we could talk about and it's like it was very hard to find anything that just uh, 
I mean, I'm trying to talk about something very serious, and I have to look at you fucking vaping right now. <laughs> I'm not. I don't know what you're talking oh, about. This man. incense, incense. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no. The only funny stuff is like you know Tina Fey do you know talking about Nazis. Which I, I, I didn't <laughs> see. It just seemed from the reaction to it like it was just I, I don't like I don't want to know. I just don't want to even know why people are worked up about the things are it's if you know the thing that we finally found is and I think you can always you know, when all else fails, look to to neuroscience or specifically <laughs> popularization of neuroscience and you will find um now I think originally I, I sent this to you. I, this sounds like it's kind of up our alley. It's called it's it's a it's a blog on Scientific American called "What Does Your Dog Really Want?" Yeah, and like honestly, like I saw it, I skimmed it. I was like, oh, you know, in, it, like when fucking Nazis and potential race wars are looming over us, like talking about dogs, that that seems fun. Like you know, something interesting. And I think we both had the same reaction to it, which is we skimmed it. We were like, there's probably going to be some, you know, that's kind of misguided neuroscience talk, but there might be something interesting to think about. And then we, and then I, I, we both read it more carefully. Um, and it just seemed like even as these pop neuroscience articles go, that this one was at a level above or i guess below or i don't know how you want whichever like the dumber level of, uh the, the and, lower the, yeah, or, or lower. the more philosophically misguided level that's the thing and so yeah. you know it's not like so i guess we should just talk about it. it's not like I expect people to 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 know the nuances of philosophy of mind but this but this is the case in which like if you're gonna write about it and you're gonna actually quote it and you're gonna talk about like the you know the relevance of it for for something like neuroscience then at least get it right so so this was published in the scientific american um by gregory burns and it's called what does your dog really want with mri scientists are beginning to answer that question in a much more sophisticated way which that's the first warning sign, actually. Yeah. Anybody who's had a dog, I think you kind of know what they, what they want. And anyone who knows anything about fMRI research, it, it doesn't give sophisticated, fine-grained results. <laughs> right. If like it, if I'm like, I, I want a donut, and then you're like, I don't know, I don't know. Let me put you in an MRI. Yeah. No. Nope. Turns out, no. No. <laughs> no fuck you. I want a I donut. Mean, there is exactly. There is exactly that, like a series of those that, that, that it's not a joke. Like, I mean, it's just stated seriously. And I want to go like, I want to make sure that I didn't misunderstand it or that there's something uh, that, you know, there's something I missed or something like some way in which I, when I read it, I wasn't being fair. So, but the, but the way it sets it up is so in Alaska, they just passed a law that when people get divorced, and there's a custody dispute over the dog, they will now consider the pets, like what the pet wants in right. terms of who should get, get the dog. So in other words, they're not treating pets just like ordinary property for the first time. They're actually taking their interests into account. 
However, how do you determine what the, the pet really wants? So you might think that behavioral measures might be able to give a good account of that or just people's reports about it. But what this person argues is all of those measures are flawed. If you want to know what the pet, what the dog really wants, you put them in an fMRI scanner. Um, and, w and he goes through the sort of experiments that he did to back up this somewhat striking and remarkable claim. The way he introduces it first is by saying is by like giving a little scientific and philosophical background. So he's and especially philosophical. He talks about Descartes, who thought animals were just machines and didn't have any kind of inner life. And then he talks about Thomas Nagel's uh, famous article, which we should do uh, for a future episode. Right. What is it like to be a bat? in which Nagel argues that, you know, neuroscience and really all sciences aren't going to be able to convey what it is to actually be like a bat or what it is to be another species, um, and especially one that perceives the world in such different ways. So the bat is an interesting choice because whereas we're so reliant on our visual on our vision for they are practically blind and mostly use hearing and echo echolocation. Is that the right? Uh, yeah. Now he says after hundreds of scan sessions with these dogs, I have to disagree with the Cartesians and Nigalians. Not only can we have a pretty good idea of what it's like to be a dog, we can use this technology to know what a dog really wants, sometimes better than we can by observing their behavior. Again, very striking claims there that we can actually know because of these experiments that we'll talk about in a second what it actually feels like to be a dog pretty good idea uh, and then number two that we can use the technology to detect what the dog wants in ways that are better than any current measure that we have the, i mean so right away it's like to summarize nagel's point in the way that 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 this author does is to miss is to to miss Nagel's point entirely. I think. I mean, for one, <laughs> Nagel's claim wasn't like that. We just need a little. We just need to know a little bit more about the brains, and then we'll finally unlock the mystery of what it's like <laughs> to be a bat. Right? right. I mean, the very point of it is that imagine that you know exhaustively right. everything you need to know about a brain. What that doesn't get you is the phenomenology, right? Yeah. It doesn't get you, which is different. The subjective than, experience. Than the subjective experience, which is a different claim than dualist. You know, I mean, there's you could relate those two, but you don't have to be a dualist to believe that phenomenology is a thing that can't be ex epistemically accessed in something so different from who, someone who is not you, basically, right? This is a, it's Bats are just illustrative of this problem because of the reasons that you said, but I don't know even what it's like to be Tamler. Um, <clears throat> it's awesome. Yes, I imagine. <laughs> no, I'm at, I imagine because even when you say it sucks, I put you in an MRI and I can, I'm like, no, no, you're having a pretty good time. Yeah, <laughs> right. That, you actually like to watch me vaping. <laughs> I know. I know. It's self-report. Self-report is super flawed. In, fa in fact, it's 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 more generally 
just the opposite or whatever the true, <laughs> true desires are. Um, but so, so the, the conflation of what it's like to be a dog and what a dog wants is, is another uh, step that, uh, that I think makes no sense. Right. So, so uh, if I if I put in one in one little box some fruit in another box some poop and a bat goes to the fruit I think it's pretty clear and 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 a fairly uncontroversial claim to say that the bat wants the fruit and not, not the poop I don't think Nagel at all was like damn if only we knew what bats wanted like that that would be a different essay and one that's not that interesting and and, and we often I mean like when I make. I don't know, a hamburger, my dogs are drooling and slobbering and just wagging their tails and waiting because they know I'm going to give them some. And then I do like, I know what they, I know that they want it. Like I know with a hundred percent certainty that they want that food. Right. Does that mean I know what it's like to be them? Of course not. No, right. no. It it gives you some sort of propositional information about uh, about their preferences, right? Yeah. I, like, um, it, and again, this is a problem that we have with just other human beings. Sometimes, you know, it's not until they behave that we know what they want. And even when they behave, perhaps with humans, it's actually the case that they are they're it's, it's pretense. Yeah. With dogs, it's actually easy. <laughs> But it's I, not I, as much pretense with that. <laughs> right. Well, I, I agree with everything you're saying about misunderstanding Nagel. The central thing that the author is arguing for, which is that fMRIs can tell us what a dog really wants better than these other ways that we've traditionally done it. Like, I, I think the arguments for that are borderline insane, too. Did you agree well, with that? No, no. I mean, and this this is one problem with, with this brand of cognitive neuroscience, and 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 it's. I think it's very simple to describe the central problem with using this kind of inference, which is um, not in dogs. Let's just take humans for a second. So, I want to know what area of your brain is uh, active when you desire something. So I put you in an fMRI, and I, in order to do this, in order to find the area of the brain that's active, I need a reliable way to know that you are wanting something. Right. So how do I know that, right? And so in this article alone, if I can find it, um, when, they're ta- when he's talking about the caudate nucleus, which is an area of the brain that's, that's sort of linked to desire, yeah. So he says, more generally, the caudate links motivational states to motor systems so animals can get what they want. In dozens of studies, human caudate activity has been correlated with individual preferences. So, so in, in order to find out how the, the caudate is Im- implicated in preferences, you have to ask individuals what they prefer or right. measure their behavior. Same is true for emotions. Same is true for any other thought. The only way to validate this work is to compare it to something observable, whether it's memory, emotional states, desires, all that stuff. The only reason we know what parts of the brain are active is because we have asked or measured in other ways. Right. The idea that you are going to use neuroscience in a way that is superior, that that's going to give you superior insight to the traditional self-report or behavioral measures seems like fundamentally flawed from the beginning because the only reason you have the 
the, any information about which part of the brain is correlated with those preferences is by using those, those uh, other, measures. other measures. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it almost seems like impossible by definition. Now, I think, I, I think he might have, the, 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 the author here might have some kind of argument uh, against that that I want to go over just so that we don't like we yeah. we try to make sense of of what it is. So yeah, I so I guess like so you could then start if the relationship was really robust between particular brain area and a particular psychological state and you had good theoretical reason to think that that wasn't just a quirk that because correlations again aren't causation so so you had some some good reason to think that in fact was the neural mechanism involved in wanting at some point maybe you could take that and and use it and, and tell people look you know i don't even want you to tell me what your preferences are and you could you could predict but again in most of these cases, you would say, "All right, were we right? Did you yeah. really want that?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's look. Let's look at his experiment. So he says, and "I quote: In one of our recent experiments, we set out to determine whether dogs' apparent love of their humans was driven entirely by the provision of food, or whether dogs valued the, the relationship for purely social reasons." Right. While they were in the MRI, we presented the dogs with two objects, which served as visual cues. One object meant they would receive a piece of food on the end of a stick. The other telegraphed that their human would pop into view and say something like, Yay, good girl. Here's the reported results of this study. Measured by their brain activity, two dogs really liked food, whereas four preferred human praise and attention. One was appropriately named Velcro. <laughs> Hilarious. I don't, I just just yeah. but most but, mo but most of the dogs liked both at least their brains did so in that really in those in the, the, the those two sentences you see like so much confusion right measured by their brain activity two dogs really liked food whereas four preferred human praise and attention so what what he means by that is that that the the caudate nucleus or whatever which in humans has been shown to be active during the anticipation of something pleasurable, but only by checking whether it actually, that, right. that, that they really were anticipating something pleasurable. So measured by that, you, you could say the dogs liked human social praise more or, uh, or, but then he goes, or at least their brains did. Now, just what does, think about that. What does that mean? What, because their actual brain, so, most dogs like both, at least their brains did. Their actual brain doesn't like it. If you just propped out the brain and put it on the table, the brain wouldn't have any preferences whatsoever. So what do you, like, what does that mean even metaphorically? Like to make that sort of clause, to, to, to modify the claim like that. So to, to jump in with, with some of our listeners who might be jumping up and down saying, no, but you know, your psychology is your brain. So it's not actually anything wrong to say that. Well, what? Uh, what well, no, that's why it's wrong. Yeah. So what, he, here's one way to catch the intuition pretty clearly. You, can, you could say that uh, the atoms preferred uh, humans, right? At that point, you'd be like, well, wait, atoms can't prefer anything, 
right? And and I and I think that <laughs> that it's pretty clear that when you say something like a desire, what you mean is the subjective state of desire that the organism has, not just physical activation. And now, right. of course, physical activation causes desire. Like, of course, just like atoms cause physical activation. Or constitutes desire. Constitutes, yeah, even constitutes yeah. desire. But, but what thing. I'm sort of stunned by when you see this is that kind of dualism. It Like, to, to make that, mo- to, to say bo- most dogs liked both, at least their brains did, the implication almost logically is that there's two different things there's yeah. what the brain likes and what the dog likes now right. only a dualist would think that and and if you don't think that i can't make sense of that sentence right um, and you don't and and for somebody who just railed on cartesians you know i think that there's this conception that that some scientists have that by dualism we mean that there's an external soul and in fact, a lot of neuroscientists turn out to talk just like dualists, even though it's not soul-body dualism, is very much mind-body dualism, like the way that I mean, he's describing. That yeah. is mind-body dualism. Right <clears throat> it is there. exactly right. It, it can't. It, it 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 really can't not be. And so they conclude that for all of these, for well, for these reasons. Judges faced with determining pet custody should resist the temptation to simply let the dog choose. In 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 the Travis versus Murray case, he, they didn't have the dog. They didn't think it was practical to use uh, dog MRI. But now, after trained, after training almost a hundred dogs, we see it is not so hard for dogs to go into M- fMRI scanner, MRI scanner, and the window into their brains tells us things that their behavior does not. You know, you skipped over then that they did yeah. a behavioral test because right because because this is where I think is like this is their defense of, yeah. of this what I, what seems like sputtering gibberish, just <laughs> nonsense, like dualist nonsense. So so uh, after the MRI, they say we also measured the dog. He says we also measured the dog's preferences by offering them a choice outside outside the scanner in a large room. We set up a V maze with the owner at the end of one arm and a food bowl at the end of the other. The dogs ran the maze 20 times, and we analyzed the sequence of their choices. Dogs whose brains were more active to praise tended to repeatedly go to their owners, whereas food-loving dogs' brains stuck with the chow. Now imagine if that actually were reversed. If what they said was dogs whose brains liked praise tended to avoid their owners and the dogs who love food tended to avoid food, you would say, well, your MRI is wrong, right? (laughs) You would just be like, well, that's not something wrong with the way you measured liking because obviously the dogs, um, but again, if all you want to know is what they like, that's the very thing that they defend is the method of having a dog choose multiple times between their owner and food. And then, then they take all that away in their conclusion and say, you know, it's not reliable enough. Like so, so, so here's the, the this is the key paragraph after what you just described. This is the problem with relying solely on behavior to intuit what a dog wants. Like people, they may have competing preferences. I would say they definitely have competing preferences. Right. I will always remember my dog Tess when she would see a pile of deer shit. 
and mm, it was this big, just nasty, disgusting pile of deer shit. And <laughs> she would look, and we would, you know, we knew this what was going to happen or possibly happen. And she would look at us and she knew that we didn't want it. And she doesn't, she did not like making us angry and mad at her, but that deer shit was just so tempting. And she literally hovers with her shoulder down, kind of thinking whether to do it, whether or not to do it. And then, you know, I would say 80% of the time, probably she just says, fuck it. And she rolls around in the deer shit and, like and then comes up and just you know all right i'm gonna get yelled at but it fucked like it was worth it that's some awesome deer shit right (laughs) so like definitely they have competing preferences okay sorry like people they have competing preferences placed in a situation and forced to choose one or the other they may adopt any number of strategies that have nothing to do with their true preferences they may go to the largest thing They may always go left or right, or they may stick with the first thing they choose, even if the other option might be better. The MRI data opened a window into the dog's minds without forcing them to make a choice. So I think that's like, if if you were going to defend this view as coherent, like it it would be something you'd have to, this would be your paragraph, but I, I don't totally get it. No, although the paragraph, I think, just digs the hole a bit deeper because now you have to have almost like a theory of hierarchical will for the dogs where you say, so your dog um, sees the deer shit, sees, sees that, that <laughs> she might get in trouble or doesn't want to displease you. So in the cases where she avoids the deer shit, uh, does it make sense to say she didn't really want to avoid the deer shit? I mean, it's like, it's of, so of course, like her true it, self. Her tr- yeah, what? there's a true self of dog. We need the philosophy of will for dogs. Um, uh, Frankfurt, like this is like Frankfurt for dogs, actually. <clears throat> it's a <laughs> dachshund theory, Frankfurt. Um, so if I showed you porn, right, and I saw that your caudate nucleus was activated, yeah. Um, would I conclude that the MRI, to, to quote them again, the MR, that the MRI data opened a window into your true preferences? And this whole time you've been lying that you want to be faithful to your wife. Um, in fact, it's clear that you prefer cheating on your wife than not cheating. Um, even though you behave as if you don't want to cheat, you say that you don't want to cheat and you claim to value your marriage. But look at that caudate. It's not until we saw the cut eight that we that we realized what your true preferences were. So so I think it just gets my wife just throws me out of the house like just books all over. I saw that cut eight nucleus. (laughs) You sick bastard. And you'd be like, no, but the stand the 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 measurement error in fMRI is not at the point where you can conclude anything. Nagel, (laughs) Nagel. Here's what I think because I. Often these conversations just make it sound like I think there's no value in neuroscience or in cognitive neuroscience. <clears throat> and Which I'm is gonna, mostly true, I think, about you. There's, may, this is actually what I think for the record, because you probably yeah. already got emails. Um, my uh, uh, good friend of mine, Will Cunningham, whom I went to grad school with, um, he does cognitive neuroscience. And and I think he he has a very sober view. He says... There is a temptation to think that the direction of value is that as we learn more about the brain, we will have better psychological theories, when in fact, the direction is the other way around. 
for neuroscientists is very important to learn about the brain by yeah. validating it in just this way, by, by figuring out what is correlated with actual preferences or actual behavior or actual, you know, other measures of emotion. So we learn about the brain and how the brain works by comparing it to these other better, less noisy, fairly reliable measures. So it's not to say that at some point, maybe we'll be able to measure things so well that you won't need to tell me that you like donuts. I'll just flash a picture of a donut and, 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 and I'll know. But it won't ever tell you whether or not you have conflict about, you know, whether you're eating like shit in life or that you really, truly um, uh, wish that you didn't have these desires or anything like that. That shit, you just, here's what, I mean, you could use these data to say something like, um, I put, I don't know, I don't know what you like, but say you like donuts and pizza. So I show you donuts and I show you pizza and perhaps at some point we'll get to we'll get to have robust enough measurements that I'll be able to predict which one you like better. <laughs> you would have to check that based on whether I actually really like them better. So so again it's like the bar seems to be the psychology. The neuroscience doesn't seem like it will ever be able to tell you more accurately what you like than these other measures because that's how you I mean we, we've said this uh, a, a number of times but his conclusion is exactly the opposite it's like I mean he really this is what this guy is advocating at the end this is why this is kind of morally offensive <laughs> uh, if anybody actually did this is even if the dog is demonstrating with their behavior in every recognizable way that, that they prefer one of the people in the divorce, that you put them in an fMRI machine, you flash up two pictures, and if the, what's that area of the brain? Caudate the, nucleus. Caudate nucleus, like, is more activated for one of them, then you, you give it to that person. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and because that is the tr the true self of the dog is right. measured by the caudate nucleus, not like everything the dog seems to be doing. And, <laughs> right. I, I mean, it's you, you could see why people would be worried about it, not just at the level of dogs, but at the level of like human beings, right? It, because people don't think clearly about neuroscience. I mean, I think that's shown time and time and again, is like there's something about neuroscience as a topic that makes otherwise smart people into... Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm repeating myself, but, but I think it's really important to, to drill this home because it's, it's not that these other measures of preference for instance, are so great or that people don't lie or that there's not error in measuring behavior or that, that it's not that, that brain measures won't get more reliable or anything like that. It's simply <laughs> that <laughs> in order to know about the brain, you have to correlate it with all those other measures. So if right. you think all those other measures suck, if they really suck, what we know about the brain is not really knowledge. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I, it doesn't seem like that complicated. I don't know why. A point. I get in this argument about once a year with like uh, yeah. you know, grad students or something, or colleagues actually. Like it's a it's a weird. You're right. It just it's just like it just it fucks everybody up. It's like it's like a drug. It's like some sort of like mist in the air that all of a sudden like people. I don't know. And I, and I and I still hold out the possibility that maybe there's something you and I, maybe it's like maybe there's something we're missing here. It seems kind of crystal clear, obvious to both of us. I think. But 
Well, uh, I think what the yeah. real the the real test would be um, to show us like cognitive neuroscience articles while we're in the MRI because maybe we actually like them. Maybe we're fans, yeah. <laughs> right? Maybe we're actually impressed by them and find them insightful. <laughs> Caught it all up in this motherfucker. Yeah, it's like I think I'm the one that's crazy. Like they're all gaslighting me. Like this, <laughs> that's what it is. The entire like field, we're getting like gas- all of NSF and NIH, they're all gaslighting me. Like I can't figure out what. <laughs> Fucking a. Like maybe a listener will just set us straight about this, and we'll be like, "Oh, that's what we're missing." I, well, I, think, I, I yeah, can't imagine. At this point, it, I don't know. They've I'm had just, their chance. At this, yeah. At this point, I don't know if it's just my mind is closed in a way that will never. <laughs> right. <clears throat> it's like mm-hmm. we'll just say fake news if somebody like. <laughs> <laughs> gives us that key little linchpin exactly it's too like important to our social identities at this point right <laughs> <laughs> fuck the brain <laughs> all right let's take a break and when we come back we will uh see if we can not get into trouble by talking about intelligences Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this point in the podcast, we like to thank our listeners, new and old. We definitely have a lot of new ones after appearing on Sam's Waking Up podcast. And thank you, Sam Harris. You've brought brought us a significant chunk of our audience. I mean, we really appreciate all the people reaching out to us in all the various different ways that you do. You can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. We've gotten a lot of emails, as Dave said earlier. We've stuck to our commitment. We read every single email, and we try to reply to the ones that we can. But um, but please send them and know that we are reading them. Um, You can like us on Facebook, and there's some really intelligent discussion of our episodes and the topic of our episodes on our Facebook page. So I urge you to go there and we always post on Facebook the the episode and that's where the comments um, usually go. I mean, it's really an impressive, smart group of people on there. Tweet us at Tamler, at Peas, at Very Bad Wizards and Instagram. I think Eliza's Getting back on Instagram, at least provisionally, and that's just Very Bad Wizards on Instagram. 
What else? If any listener knows the rapper Loaded Lux, I've been <laughs> trying to get in touch with him. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to get permission to quote rap lyrics of his or from this battle, from the Calico battle, which I, the Loaded Lux Calico <laughs> battle, and I'm just finding it hard. Like, you can't imagine how awkward it is for a philosophy professor on Instagram and Twitter to try to get in touch with, with a rapper. So uh, if anyone has any connection to Loaded Lux or the Ultimate Rap League, let me know. That, that would be much appreciated. Other ways to support us are by going on Patreon, patreon.com slash verybadwizards. You can give us a one-time donation on PayPal. Whenever you go to Amazon, we'd really appreciate it if you stopped by our support page first, clicked on the link, and then do all the shopping that you would normally do, and we will get uh, a small cut of that. You can rate us on iTunes. We've gotten a lot of good reviews. One day yeah. I want to read, like we've had so many good reviews recently. It's really funny, really clever, and very complimentary and flattering. So please continue to rate us on iTunes. S subscribe to us on iTunes, even if you hate them, even if you hate <laughs> Apple like I do. And mm, I think your caudate nucleus would betray you. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's it. Did I miss anything? No, but you know, um, I, I I think rarely talk about this, but um, but uh, sometimes I get requests or comments about the music. Um, so oh yeah! If, if you really care to listen to the music, I put a lot of the break uh, music that I I make on my SoundCloud account. So it's SoundCloud.com/slash Peases My Name, all one word. Um, and uh, if you if you care, there's a lot of people who who say very nice things and um, you can follow, you can follow it there pretty much every, not every beat, but, but all of the ones that I think make the cut I post up there. Except the ones you give to our Patreon. Except for, I save a few because uh, I put together, it's right, uh, for our $2 subscribers, I put together two compilations of beats that include some of the ones that I make publicly. But, but really I think the creative energy is in, compiling them and making an interesting sounding uh an album so i'm actually working on the third volume right now um Ooh. so yeah i need so, some good, art, good artwork that's what's holding me back good artwork yeah usually so i've gotten original original artwork twice so i'm looking for some original art, artwork again yeah maybe my friend nikki uh or if some you know spread the love let me know um and since we're engaging in naked self-promotion, then I will say, buy A Very Bad Wizard, the book, forward by Dave Pizarro. I, right. I, the greatest I'm piece of really writing. proud of those, that group of interviews. So many incredible researchers in it. I, I would like it to get a little more play than it does. Yes. we Actually, I'll put a link in the show notes. And uh, we got a funny request for you to do an audio book. And your claim, <laughs> your, your claim was that you can't possibly do all the voices, but... But that's, have you tried? I mean, come on. You can just do, <laughs> just do, do like, John, just do John Wolf, Hyde. Like, I'm John Hyde. Well, Tim, <laughs> I just want, I'm Susan Wolf. Yes, no, but I don't know if you really would. Would you really think that was meaningful? Well, no, I, Susan, I don't think I would. That's a really good point. Yeah, no, I, I, think, don't know uh, I don't know that Susan Wolf sounds like Julia Child. In the way. <laughs> that's my only woman voice. Though. I don't have another. It's good. It's good. Good job. Yeah. So for all the, that would be for all the women. That would be for Leanne Young. That would be for Valerie Tiberius. I'm Leanne Nancy. Young. I'm, I would just, I'm I would Leanne just, Young. Yeah. Very Bad Wizard, the book. 
Very bad wizard of the book. Yes. Okay. So take it away. Try not to get us fired. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, a, that, that's a good place to start because I should say that there is, um, I think, a severe reluctance, even amongst psychologists, to talk about intelligence, and um, and I, as I said at the top of the episode, I don't think that there's nearly as much to worry about as people think, and I'll get into to maybe why. And again, I'll I'll give a shout out to Stuart Ritchie, whose whose book um, I read in preparation for this. Um, but there are a lot of basics um, that I think. M- people don't quite get about the study, the field of intelligence. And so I wanted to start with, with some of them. And, and to be honest, when I was a, I don't know, starting out in college, um, studying psychology, this was me. Like, like, what I, like the, the objections that I'll raise are pretty much the ones that, that I originally had. And, and I think that, that I developed a more sober view of the field than I had at the beginning because there's maybe rightfully so there's some reluctance to make these claims. Um, but I think what happens is there's a lot of motivated reasoning where people will poo poo the entire field of research on intelligence and individual differences in intelligence because they fear the conclusions. So for the sake of this episode, let's forget whatever conclusions um, you think might be drawn from this, and let's just start with the basics. And the first when one. When you say forget the conclusions, do you mean like the implications, like policy implications? I mean the implications that people so people have both realistically and perhaps unrealistically feared um, would would occur if people really started um, to, taking IQ, for instance, seriously. So there's a lot there's a lot of reason why we're afraid of this, from eugenics to racism to sexism and the Google memo, all, all like a lot of stuff that that makes people uncomfortable um but so i want to set that aside i don't think those things follow at all from what people have done and there's there is there is a large history of really interesting and good work um on this question so i mean the primary question is first of all is is there a meaningful way in which we can say that people differ on something like intelligence and maybe like i'll start (sighs) With that, with the definition of intelligence, because that is is a stumbling a, a stumbling point for many. Is well, what do you even mean me. by intelligence? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. What does and, that mean? And and it's one of those things that's as with every concept, you know, lots of scientific concepts. They're especially psychological ones. It's hard to come up with just like a the, the necessary and sufficient definition. Um, because they all seem somehow flawed. Let's talk in the language of individual differences. Let's talk about people compared to each other. Intelligence is, in a nutshell, the ability to sort of solve problems and learn new things, right? So, so it's really broad, but but I think it's it's helpful to keep it there because uh, it, it's not that we don't we don't have more specific definitions is that that seems to capture the general flavor of what people um, often mean when they say intelligence. Solve um, problems and learn new things. Right. You could get into all kinds of questions like, like what do you mean creativity? Do you mean ability? And, and that those are good questions and we can get into those differences in a second. But so let me just figure out like, yeah. what, it, like what is a problem is 
figuring out what somebody else is is feeling and thinking based on their facial expression is that a problem and so are you intelligent if you can solve that um (laughs) that's a good question i i mean i i think that that would be something i would put in the class of, of problems so so um pulling in information to make adaptive choices you might say like um uh so this is why I think it's important to talk about the individual differences. So what we're talking about is, yeah, so the ability to to take in relevant information and use it in order to uh, to succeed in the environment. Right. So and you can't separate this from from the environment in which in which humans tend to navigate to navigate. Okay, so, so that's in another important part of it is that right. that these problems that you're solving are in enabling you to succeed in the environment that you're in. Right, exactly. So so there's actually a lot of work on animal intelligence. And one of the things that you learn there is that you, you have to use, because the environmental niches in which animals evolve, the intelligence of a crow and the intelligence of a cat will manifest themselves. It's a very different thing than the intelligence of a dog or the intelligence of a human being because the success with which they learn to navigate their environment and solve their particular problems is super dependent on, on the environment in which they live. Um, uh, so, so this is some flexibility and some ability to take the information in your environment uh, and, and use it effectively. Um, but, but I don't want to spend too much time on that general definition because you can get very specific pretty quickly. And so early people who started doing this, um, they were basically interested in like, can we construct tests to tease apart um, more intelligent from, from less intelligent people? But, but maybe what I want to ask you is, is you, do you have the sense that I have that you, I mean, it's not that hard to judge after getting to know somebody, um, whether they are like what kind of where they fall on that continuum of, of, of intelligence. Right. Right. Like there's a way in which you could definitely say this person is smarter than this person. Yeah. Um, right. And maybe this is a caricature of the objection, but some people might really say like, oh, whatever, everybody's smart in different ways. But but <laughs> I suspect that everybody is, when people say that, they just mean, well, yeah, that guy's dumb, but let's not devalue him. And so, <laughs> you know, I think we all have that sense if we're being honest with ourselves. And, and, and it's not that fine grained. It's not like, like I could put in order of intelligence every single person I know Um, and there are certain people where I really do think yeah they're smart in different ways or they're you know this person is really socially and emotionally savvy um, but seems to have trouble connecting certain ideas or making certain logical inferences maybe they think like they write neuroscience articles <laughs> where <laughs> and you know there's a kind of philosophical intelligence that i think is overvalued but certainly exists where people are really good at understanding an argument pointing at vulnerabilities to to it and they talk and they speak about it in they they they, they know how to very quickly grasp the material that they're getting and get right to the heart of what is good about it and what's bad about it or right. problematic about it. 
Yeah. Right. Being quick with the ability to solve problems. That's, yeah. that's what I'm, so I'll give like, you know, this is one of those textbook like definitions um, that, that a, a number of intelligence researchers sort of got together and wrote an article. Um, and so they, they concluded that intelligence involves the ability to reason, plan, solve problems, think abstractly, comprehend complex ideas, learn quickly and learn from experience. It is not merely book learning, a narrow academic skill or test taking smarts, rather it reflects a broader and deeper capability for comprehending our surroundings, quote unquote, catching on making sense of things or figuring out what to do. Um, in short, intelligence is the ability to use one's mind to solve novel problems and learn from experience. So there, there's a, there's a critical claim in there, which is that there is a commonality that's deep that is uh, that people who are better at reasoning are going to be better at solving problems and thinking abstractly and learning quickly and learning from their experience. Um, so that it is actually, it's, it's a, it's a factor that, that sticks together. All of those things, if you're, if you're good at one, you're good at the other. If you're bad at one, you're bad at the other. Um, uh, uh, I think Stuart Ritchie in his book talks about, you know, we, we don't have that much problem thinking of, of athletic ability in this way. Like, like obviously, you know, Michael Jordan right. is different than... The- yeah, no, there are certain people who are... And, and it, you don't even have to go professional athletes, yeah. right? Like, certain people are just good athletes. Yeah. Like, you see them, and they're... Even at a sport that they aren't, like, particularly adept at, you can tell that they're athletic. When right. When exactly. And I think you can kind of tell when at least in a very rough, rough sense, when some people are, you know, dim witted and some people yeah. are sharp or quick. Yeah. In a variety of levels. But but so my wife was a uh, grew up doing ballet and is obviously very adept at at dancing and modern dance. So there's all sorts of ways in which she's. A, a good dancer and athletic in that way but we tried to play tennis once because i've always wanted <laughs> somebody to like play tennis with and she was just hopeless it was just hopeless it was <laughs> right. just too frustrating and we never did it again like i bought her a racket and it was used once and that was right. pretty much it then other people really are just really good at one specific kind of sport. And so I wonder if that's true with intelligence, because this makes it really sound general purpose. But, you know, going back to philosophy and philosoph- there's a kind of philosophical intelligence where it almost seems inversely correlated with how good they are <laughs> at solving problems right. that aren't in the philosophical yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. So, so that gets us into that. That starts becoming an empirical, uh, an empirical question. So yeah. you could say, like, okay, is this really sort of a general thing? Let's take what we think, what we suspect is at work in people who seem to have this more than others, um, and actually measure them. There, there is like a different, a different level of objection that all, often emerges when you talk to people about this, which is a deep suspicion of IQ tests, where they say. They might grant that intelligence exists and differs and like, or, or you know, or at least yeah. after some, some discussion, they'll grant you that, that this might be an individual difference. Um, but then they say, but IQ tests are all it measures is how you do at IQ tests. And that really does a disservice to like the thousands and thousands of data points that we've collected. This is one of the, you know, one of the first 
areas of serious scientific work. In fact, it has shaped the field of psychology because of the need to have good psychometrics. And so uh, Francis Galton, who was maybe a eugenicist, but an incredibly... As eugenicists go. As eugenicists go, (laughs) was interested in this question and developed a huge number of techniques, like, you know, pretty much just pulled out of his ass, like statistical techniques like correlations and the measurement of standard deviations it was and was really interested in whether or not you could you could measure this so people have since that time done a ton of work measuring every aspect of intelligence that you can imagine from reaction time and spatial ability and knowledge and processing speed and um, memory and we could talk about some of these but yeah, so I actually have no idea. This is probably a good proxy for the listener too. Have you ever taken? I, I think I've taken an IQ test when I was really young. Uh, I remember being. I don't remember doing it, but I was told that I did it by my parents. Um, but I have no memory of it. So I and I was just thinking. I don't know what. I have no idea what they test for in IQ. But I have a kind of stereotypical imagination that it's like the LSATs. But right. like, but you know, it's actually uh, more like uh, what day is Yom Kippur, right? Which foods are forbidden by the Torah? <laughs> is it very Jew centered? <laughs> no, but really, what it goes on an IQ test? I have no idea. Um, so a good IQ test, like there's a lot of you know crap on the internet that you can take, um, will include a whole bunch of different dimensions. So there's different IQ tests. Yeah. And I- There are different IQ tests, and a lot of them are actually kept very, very uh, well guarded by the publishing companies because uh, these these are actual corporations nowadays who who publish them. And I mean, there's good reason to keep them uh, away from the public eye because what you don't want what what happens is what happens on like the GRE and the SAT, where people start studying for the test. And so that it loses validity. It stops being it stops being a good measure of what you know and starts becoming a measure of how motivated you are or how much access you have to information about how to take that test. Um, and so so there's they're constantly working to keep these valid. Um, but memory. So uh, digit span, like you're asked to recall a list of, you're given lists of numbers and you're asked to remember them or you're asked to uh, list them in reverse order. Um, spatial tests, like you're given rotating figures. There's a, there's a purely nonverbal test called Raven's Progressive Matrices where you're just shown a bunch of geometric figures and you're asked what they would look like if they were rotated 180 degrees. Yeah. Um, you're asked like pattern matching questions like here, here are, are three figures that differ in some way. What would the fourth figure be um, given the changes in the first three figures? Um, you're asked vocabulary. You're actually asked knowledge. Um, like how many words do you know? What do those words mean? There's this amazing finding. This is one of the earliest things I learned about IQ. Reaction time is actually highly correlated with other measures of IQ. So if I, literally, if I just give you, uh, if I say, whenever you see this light turn on, press a button. The faster you are at that, the higher your IQ is, right? It's not perfect. 
Um, but wait a minute. Oh, because that's correlated with other measures. It's correlated with other things. Yeah. So, yeah. so, and this this gets us to what is perhaps one of the the biggest in the minds of the public controversies um, about IQ. Uh, well, not maybe not in the public, but but scholarly one, which is when you look at all of these measures, combine all of them. Things like like literally like tests of working memory and uh, tests of processing speed, how good you are at mentally rotating figures, all of those things stick together. And they yeah. all, they're all highly correlated. And so this is why uh, people have proposed that there is a general factor of intelligence they call G, um, this G factor that is, is a, you know, let's call it real. Like it is a thing like there is a G factor and we can measure this in a bunch of different ways and we can construct tests that measure it in a bunch of different ways. And those tests give us a valid assessment of overall intelligence, this G factor. So, so let me just uh, ask one question yeah. about that. So, and I, cause I think I remember Eliza taking this test to see whether she could get into this, you know, public Houston public schools, they have magnet programs and one of them is a, uh, a vanguard program which is supposedly for gifted and talented or whatever uh, yeah. students and you have to have a certain score on this test and it sounded like it was exactly that it was yeah. a lot of pattern recognition and rotating stuff and because we asked her they keep it so under wraps so so that so that Right. people don't prepare their kids and drill their kids which is i guess good <laughs> but but i was like fascinated with what was on it so i asked her afterwards and she she told me she's four years old like kids were like pissing their pants uh <laughs> taking like there was this one boy right before her that just pissed his pants so this was his third time and he was trying to do it this time without pissing his pants <laughs> uh, i know it's terrible and it like really uh like affects their their future um, but none of those measures seem to measure anything interpersonal. Um, right. So, so there are, so you could ask the question whether or not those things correlate with interpersonal, um, skills and abilities, but you're right. They are pure, like cognitive tasks. They are, they're abstract cognitive tasks. Now, it doesn't mean that you that people high in interpersonal skills and abilities won't actually do better on this. It just it is it is it's independent of it's, that. Yeah. It's never been matched with interpersonal skills. Not you know this is where my knowledge will betray me because there's so much work done on it. But but if, but in general, the claim is that um, the people who are interested in interpersonal skills like that. Um, at, actually argue that interpersonal skill is a separate measurable entity that predicts success in life above and beyond measures of IQ. Um, so IQ really is, it's a very cognitive or intelligence. Non-interpersonal intelligence, is it fair to say that um, that's what it measures? It's it's cognitive or, or intelligence, right? Because it, it excludes a lot of other things that people might call intelligence. So, and this gets us into the the a, a bit of like the the bullshit in in these debates because sometimes people are like, well, interpersonal intelligence 
is just a misnomer. What you mean is interpersonal skills and skills are different from intelligence. Um, but yeah, I think the that's easy like answer if you're a Platonist is, about, I, I saw that in some of the like controversy reading about it. It seemed like there was some lingering Platonism as to what, like, it seems like as long as you define your terms properly, but yeah. I, but, but maybe the, what's leading to that is the way you described it, the reason I asked that question about interpersonal measures is you were like, all these things kind of lump together to make yeah. a general intelligence like yeah. number. And so that it's that general word that makes it sound like it's supposed to encompass all possible ways of being intelligent or right and i think the answer is that that no these are the it, when if you measure I, one problem is we're not very good at measuring interpersonal skills and abilities no we're, we've not put in yeah it's very easy to measure memory it's very easy to measure reaction time it's very easy to measure you know figure mm. rotation it's hard to measure uh whether you're empathic or whether you you know you are a good persuader and so it could just be that because those measures are worse we haven't found that they correlate highly with all those other measures um and that's why but but at least what i can say i think with some confidence is that the people who defend that kind of interpersonal skill or ability as a separate way of being smart even them they themselves grant that it is uh it is not captured in the same g uh way as all these other measures okay. um but by the way i gotta give it to to stuart ritchie he has a subsection in his book called nothing but a g thing <laughs> Nice. So in some ways, intelligence kind of once they once we did, we had this sort of uh, uh, basic way in which you carved out that domain, like what do we mean by intelligence? Then there's just been a, a hundred plus years of work in figuring out what goes into it. In a bottom up way, our knowledge of what is intelligence was fed by results. And so um, so early on, you know. There were pushes like there. A lot of this work came from from trying to determine uh, where to place somebody in the military, for instance, right? So you'd give all these soldiers this battery of tests, um, uh, or or countries in which they had, you know, they were really cared about like uh, measuring this stuff in their kids, and so you'd get you know a whole generation of kids who were given these things. Um, so Binet, out the the French psychologist. Uh, Alfred Binet is one of the first guys to develop a good way to measure this in kids. When you look at all of the work on on intelligence, what's clear is there does seem to be this cluster that's individual that that really does differ among people um, and is measurable and is meaningful. Because we'll get into what that predicts. Because if you you can you can measure all this stuff and say that they stick together, but but you still have to at least defend why you call this intelligence and if it happened to not predict success then you'd be like well <laughs> i don't know right. what that says about intelligence but it turns out that it really does so once you get through all the problems with measurement and you give people this metric it turns out that that say iq the number that is encapsulates the uh, uh, the results of an intelligence test actually is a really really powerful predictor of all kinds of shit but it's not the only like predictor. what? What does it predict success? Um, like how is like at the risk of being a philosopher? Yeah, yeah, how yeah, is no. success defined? It, uh, it in all kinds of ways. So you, it predicts income. It predicts happiness. Um, it it predicts health. 
right? One of the one of the crazy things is that it predicts mortality. That is, the smarter you are, the longer you live. And now there are all kinds of questions about uh, correlation and causation. So it predicts education level. Um, and so, so you might ask, well, is it just that smart people uh, live longer or is it just that people who are from a high socioeconomic background right. um, and so there's some third variable? And that's, that's what makes work in this d domain so tricky. You can't randomly assign uh, people right. to this stuff. But, uh, but I think the important lesson, is, I mean, one of the really important points is that nobody ever in, the, in, in this uh, field of study has argued that intelligence is the only predictor or that there aren't obviously tricky ways in which correlation and causation um, are, are hard to tease apart. So the attempts that have been made, though, um, there's good reason to think that, um, that at some basic level, IQ is really causing some of this stuff. So when you look very early on in life, measurements of IQ in, in, very, in early life are predictive of measurements in later life. By the way, the, these IQ tests are very, they have good tests, what they call test retest reliability. So if you take it this week and then take it a month from now, you'll get around oh, the same score. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if you, as they've done by now, if you take it when you're a teenager and then you take it again when you're a very old person, you have a high correlation. Um, so it's, it's tracking something. See, when you try to control for all sorts of stuff statistically, it seems like a very robust measurement. Um, and maybe, maybe this gets us into the, one of the most controversial aspects, um, which is the work on the heritability of this stuff. So well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. And in some ways, this is starting to get into the controversy. But I think, again, that these are fairly uncontroversial findings, at least if all you care about is facts. But one way in which you can tell that this is a, a sort of a robust individual difference that's, that is heritable, and heritable has a specific meaning that I'll get into in a second, is, is that when you look at um, studies like on twins, so the, the very common way of doing this is looking at um, the difference between identical twins and fraternal twins, right? right. So identical twins share all of their genes, um, fraternal twins don't, but they were both, they're both the same age, raised in the same environment. The correlation between two identical twins IQ is much higher than the correlation between the fraternal twins. So you could do the fancy math and you can see what percentage of intelligence is due to heritable factors by kind of doing this, this very abstract uh, description of it, but subtracting sort of the, the variance of just the, the environment which fraternal twins share, um, and the her the heritable aspects, which fraternal twins share less of than identical twins. And by doing that math, you can you can sh you can see that in fact these are are heritable. What about like have they? I'm assuming they've done studies on identical twins raised and yes, reared apart, apart versus reared differently, adopted versus right. Um, yeah. So so adoption studies, yeah, and the estimates are about the same because they're. There is, and maybe you're pointing to this, there is a problem that, that by dint of looking the same, uh, identical twins might get treated the same. So they have what they call shared and non-shared environments. Um, and it turns out the estimates are pretty reliable. You know, as with almost all other psychological traits, you know, there's about 50% of the variance is captured by, by heritability. 
Now, though, that's a group estimate. That just means that overall in the population, like whatever the environmental factors. So about 50% of the variance that is, uh, uh, if you are trying to, to explain what causes some people to have a higher IQ and some people to have a lower IQ, um, in those causes, uh, about 50% would be due to something that was heritable. And I think this is where it gets a little tricky because there's when you say that heritability is high, it's like a mathematical estimate from these studies. People think that what you're saying is we know the genes that cause intelligence. And that is actually not true. So you don't have to know shit about how genes even work to to calculate right. a heritability estimate. So you you just basically are saying I don't know what the biological mechanisms are that cause these differences, but I know that these are not differences due to environment, right? So, so heritability is, is not a genetic claim. Uh, it's not a claim about specific genes. Whatever isn't due to the environment, that's heritability. Right. Shared and non-shared environment. Again, you don't need to know the genetic mechanisms. In fact, we so, don't so know. So this sort of assumes that it's those two things are the only things there are. Right. Yeah. Like I mean, the heritability and environment. Yeah. I mean, which is a plausible assumption. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's not controversial because you're really just lumping. So, but again, this is really different than we have no, we have no really good idea about this, the genes. Like the best that we know at this point is that it's a ton of different genes working in concert. Right. right. And, and that we probably could have <laughs> predicted. Yeah. It's exactly like there's not one, it's not, it's, it, it's not a claim about like genetics in the way that like brown eyes and blue eyes work. And that's what gets people, I think, tripped up a little bit. They think that, that, um, that what you're saying is, uh, they'll go from heritability to genetic mechanism to racial differences all within one breath. And, uh, and I think that's, that's a mistake, but we won't, we don't have to get there yet. (laughs) So one way of saying it is 50% of how smart like tell me if this is fair it sounds like an oversimplification but 50 percent of how smart you are has to do with who your parents were yeah although it's better said because these are these are uh, group statistics is that in in the group of people with uh higher versus lower iqs about 50 percent of that difference between the high group and the low group is due so you can't say it for one person so like it's a subtle distinction and, and conceptually what you're saying captures the spirit, but it's you. Right. You I, can't I, th- say that's about, not yeah. what was measured. Yeah. They didn't measure it for the individual, but it would right. be implausible that that the group differences were like that the way that was cashed out was this one person, 100 <laughs> right. percent right, 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 and right. this other person, zero percent of their intelligence. Exactly. That, that would be yeah. very weird. I, you know, I didn't say this before, but I think it's important to to understand how these scores are calculated. So everybody knows, I think, that uh, like 100 is. Well, I don't know. Do you know that 100 is the average IQ? No. OK, so. So that's that sounds like it's insightful, but it's not at all. That is just when you measure every you give say you gave everybody an IQ test. Um, all you do is you look at the mean score. So let's say this there are six hundred and twenty-two items, right? You just take the the arithmetic mean, the average, and you assign that score one hundred. 
So, so it, the number itself is, is not inherently meaningful. It is just the shorthand for, for no matter what, it would always be the, the it will always be 100 and that, yeah. and, and, and I'll get to why one of the very interesting things about that, um, uh, but then the standard deviation is 15 points. So one standard deviation above is an IQ of 115. One standard deviation below is an IQ of 85. So, um, so and then, for those listeners who might not know what a standard deviation is, <laughs> yeah, standard deviation is just taking a look at the um, how much that group uh, varies in their mean. So you can imagine that that you take a measure and um, there uh, you measure somebody on some 10 point scale and the average is five. It could be because some people are nine and some people are one, um, or it could be because some people are 5.1 and some people are 4.9. So that later group will have high standard deviations. That means that like for any given person, when you try to estimate it, like they could be they, like the, the distribution in in those means would be a lot wider than than a very very tightly packed distribution. So um, so that's what standard deviation is measuring is sort of that variability around the group mean, um, and and so we know very well like so a normal distribution and normal distributions turn up everywhere in nature. So basically, like if you are fifteen points ab- uh, if you have an IQ of one hundred and fifteen, you're like sixty eight. You're in the top sixty eight percent. And then if you go two standard deviations, you're like now at 98% high. Um, Mensa, I think the high IQ, the douchey high IQ society, um, one of many, is you have to, I think, have 99th percentile IQ. So you're looking at IQs of, uh, you know, 135 or something like that. Um, and, uh, and that's sort of the standard way. Like, this is important just because of the way in which we talk about IQ and to know that it is a, an artificial number that's been just used as a stand-in for the average. But one of the things that happened, and this will, I think, transition us into whether or not you can change IQ, um, yeah. is that over time, are you, have you heard of the Flynn effect? Yeah. Okay. People's so, IQs have gone up, right? Yeah. And so what happened was that every few years, you would take the average and you would reset it to 100. But what Flynn did was he looked at these over time and he realized that the raw scores were going up at like basically like three points per decade. So what Mm -hmm. it means to have 100 IQ today is, uh, is essentially 30 points higher than what it meant to have an IQ 100 years ago of 100. So there is a question like what the hell is going on and this is true across the world. Um, it's a it's a very very weird weird thing because it's hard to to explain. Um, but why help- is it hard to explain? If fifty percent of it is environmental, we've just improved our environment in such a way as to make people smarter. Yeah, well, it's a good question. So th- that's that's what helps. Um, it helps to point out that again, these when you look at heritability estimates, you're looking at uh, average environments, and so some people have have better environments, some people have worse environments, um, and that that just is that is still true. Um, but but you're close to to one explanation. So what happens is when you look at one, here's one real distinction. I talked about G, um, but it turns out that there is at least one reliable distinction. Um, in intelligence, and and that is between things like vocabulary, knowledge, things um, that's that's what's called often crystallized intelligence, mm-hmm. um, 
and then fluid intelligence, things like reaction time and working memory, um, like the basically like how good that computer is between your ears. And the Flynn effect seems to be that people just know more shit. Like we're just getting better, right? We do have like a lot more knowledge and education than we ever had in this world. So that's probably like people's reaction times have not gone up. Right. Right. Well, so, then that would be, I mean, that, that seems like something you would expect and you would be worried if it didn't go up. Right. Ex- because- exactly. So that gives actually some hope that IQ can be increased. I think that the, the, the sad part is that, that um, a lot of programs that are developed to try to improve IQs actually fail miserably. So you'll get temporary bumps in like these educational programs. Head Start, for instance, there was this initial bump in IQ the first time they measured it. And, um, and everybody got excited, oh, we can raise people's IQs. But it turned out actually not to be a reliable effect. That is, it goes, people go right back down to their average IQ after these educational programs. Um, but I think that there's an important point there too, which is again, IQ isn't everything. So Wait, it, can, can I, can yeah. I, okay. I have, I have, there's something I'm not following. Yeah. Okay. There's two different issues, right? To what extent, uh, IQ is heritable, yeah. which is to what extent, a, a, you know, like if you look at a group, it's whoever their parents were, like explains differences in intelligence. Yeah. And then there's another question, which is, Here's my IQ that you measured when I was four. I honestly think that's when my IQ is measured (laughs) because I have no memory of it at all. Four or five. Can I like up that score? Like, is there something that I could do or some social program that I can do that would up the score? Now, here's like my naive thought about that. Well, yeah, definitely because my parents only accounted for you know roughly 50 percent of of that score so whatever my environment was if you improve that environment then you can raise the score right so that would be the, the my what i assume is a very naive understanding yeah, no, of I, it, but it's I, like yeah I, I mean i that's a good that's a really good question because it does point to i think uh, um uh, we do a poor job of communicating that uh, what we mean by that environmental score. Um, it, it is not at all clear what aspects of the environment are causing this. So just right. like with the genetic, uh, just like with the heritability um, due to, you know, like the, the whatever it is that's causing um, you to have this heritability, we're not quite sure what it is in the environment that is actually um, accounting for this. So we do know some things. So like nutrition matters. Right. So I, there is a way in which I think people look at that, at that environment score and they think, oh, so like teaching people better. Um, But it's not (laughs) at all clear that that's actually so like, you know, I think that it's easy to assume that in order to get people to do better at like, you know, shapes and patterns, teach them shapes and patterns. Um, But a lot of that is probably, you know, there are, there are these features of the environment like not being constantly under stress and not being underfed. Like exercising could be a <laughs> yeah, big It thing. could very well right. be, yeah. yeah. Um, and sometimes those environmental factors are actually hard to change, right? Like extremely hard to change. Um, still, I think, unclear what the all of the factors that go into this environmental and genetic. So, but yeah, it, yeah. Which is, it's interesting that, you know, because I think people get so much more threatened by 
anything that's you know like explained by heritability than environment even when the there's no <laughs> i know there's no real sense of how to you know how much we can improve the environment you know totally it's like there there's a naive assumption that we can control environment and not control biology and that's so often not the case right i think right. pinker points out like just the simple case of eyeglasses right like <laughs> and in fact right there's recently an article on like this program in in baltimore where they just they just somebody decided to give eyeglasses to kids in the inner city and that's like had a huge effect on their testing i'm, I'm sure and if you don't it, have like basic nutrition like the fats and the yeah. proteins in order to get your brain developing right um of course right of course you're not gonna have like so lead the removal of lead has been a big contributor to the raise in iq um right but it's yeah. not something you would necessarily assume yeah people think like oh you just need a better teacher or something like that <laughs> like a trapper keepers <laughs> So, so yeah, that's the downside of this, those constructing those estimates. Is we don't really know. But when we have done like these educational programs, they don't seem to do good. But they, but they, it's a, like they do change kids' motivation. Um, it, like they do have like IQ is not the only thing like to, that that matters in success, um, and it's not the only thing that you would want to target um, in in some of these programs to improve the lives of children. Um, well, right. So the fact that it's correlated with success, let's say you can't fuck with the IQ too much. You can improve it a little bit, but just a little bit. There might be other things you can improve in the environment that you have a much better grasp of that will contribute to success, which is the thing that you care about. Because ultimately, exactly. nobody cares what your IQ score is because very few people know that. Right. But what people care about is whether they're successful and happy. So if you can gear your environmental, yeah. your social engineering um, in the non-pejorative sense towards right. those things rather than like, it's, it's in some ways kind of a convoluted thing to try to, <laughs> to like improve people's IQ to make yeah. them successful and happy rather than just make like go directly to make them successful and happy. Exactly. I yeah. mean, you, you might have a society, you might want people to be intelligent. So, you know, so that yeah. we can have like better cars and shit. Here's, I want to mention like a, a study that kind of weirds me out. Maybe it's unfair to ask you, but I will anyway. Uh, take your brother. Yeah. Which one of you do you think has a higher IQ? <laughs> 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 Don't answer that. But there's this study that that, is, that shows how, uh, how IQ is a pretty good predictor of success. And that is when you look at kids, of families of siblings... Yeah. Um, there's a pretty robust effect that, that siblings with higher, the siblings that have higher IQ make more money. <laughs> oh, well then he has the higher IQ. <laughs> I know. I was like, yeah, my sister's an attorney. I was like, damn it. <laughs> there's noise in the measures. There's all kinds of stuff. Um, I love my brother. If he has the higher IQ, God bless him. Yeah. Well, there's another thing that people think that like having too high of an IQ makes you miserable, but there's not really good evidence. That's more anecdotal evidence. There's no real, Algernon isn't really, right? Like actually people, there doesn't seem to be uh, a class of people who, who are just like fucked because they have high IQs. It's pretty much the case that like people who have higher IQs just linearly like have better outcomes overall, health, mortality, happiness, um, jobs, hmm. job success, leadership measures. Yeah. It's funny. Like, does that, 
correspond to your experience? Because I would say, had you asked me, like, no, with no knowledge of that, like, the people I rate as more intelligent, do I think as a group they're happier than the people that I, I guess it's all within the people I know. So, yeah, it's, you know, that, 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 that closes it off in, yeah, a, it's in true. a very it's significant way. But if you just go by people I know, that doesn't seem to course, that doesn't seem to reflect my experience. Right. It could be that we just don't, we don't have enough people to like, you know, it's, it's the effects aren't huge. Um, so, so maybe we need to like look at a lot more people of a wider variety of intelligences, like because we're probably in a pretty restricted range. Um, yeah. It reminds me of like Robert Sternberg, the psychologist who was at Yale when I was there. He did this famous sort of study where he showed that that um, that G, uh, uh, GRE scores don't predict graduate school success. But he yeah. did it. He did it at Yale, where it's like. There's a really, really rich, like, you know, the difference between like 93rd percentile and 98th percentile does not predict success at Yale. Yes. But like, it's not like Yale had people at like 48th percentile on their GREs in their school. Yeah. I actually, I actually don't like, there are ways in which if you're smarter, you probably pay more attention to how you ought to take care of yourself, like health wise. And like, maybe, you know, like there are all kinds of ways in which I can see it working. But I think it, it's it's not a robust enough effect to like just kind of catch from the people we know. Plus, I don't know how smart I don't know how smart you are. I, I know. Yeah, I was gonna ask. So that's what I, that was my next question. What's my IQ? You've been talking to me for five years. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> um, like I'll write it on a piece of paper and just show it to you. So, uh, <laughs> that low shit. <laughs> Fuck. I, I kind of. Yeah. Let's just say I only need two numbers. <laughs> Well, I don't know if we're done with this part, but I know we're we've been going on for a we've while. For I a don't want to get accused of dodging any of the like really controversial aspects of this. Uh, yeah, we can even area do a part two with the controversial stuff. I don't know, but so really quickly, like we had talked about multiple intelligences. So there are people like I'll just say um, and not devote too much time to it because the data just isn't there. There are there are people who who um, like Howard Gardner who say there's like seven or eight or nine or ten different kinds of intelligence and IQ is only one of them. Um, but but to be honest, they're not. It may it's it is true that people differ in their abilities in other ways that are not IQ, but to call those intelligences and to to put them sort of uh, like at this at the same level of of what we know about like IQ is just there's no evidence there's no good evidence that that is. That so those, can I? I have yeah. a objection. Yeah. Uh, on this front, having listened to your description. Two, of how these things are measured and two things popped out at me um, that this might be restricting it overly narrow restriction of what we can reasonably call intelligence yeah the one is that it seems not to sound all politically correct but it seems very male all those things seem very abstract and it seems like we're really focused on the things that at least stereotypically men so so that's number one and then number two more simply just it seems like this might be skewed towards things that are easy to measure right like and this i think is like you could even just forget what i just said um and just say well 
by almost by necessity, you are restricting measures of intelligence to the things that are that you're able to measure. But there's no reason to think as a concept that intelligence is captured by things that are easy to measure. And so there might be things like these other kinds of intelligences, the Howard Gardner kinds of intelligences that are really important aspects of intelligence, but we just don't have good measures for them, which you said, and I, I'm, I, I, I trust you on that. Like, but that doesn't mean that that's not part of what we should call intelligence. Right. Well, let's, so let's take the, the first one, um, the gendered, the gendered one. Um, so I, I'll push you a little bit on it because I actually don't know whether it really does cut the sort of gender stereotype line. So, so working memory, like your ability to remember digits, you know, like, more digits in memory, um, like like seven versus ten numbers, and the ability to tell them to me in backwards order from how I told them to you, like those those at least to to me, like I don't immediately think of it as gender stereotyped, um, or uh, or reaction time, like see a light and press a button. Um, I don't I don't have a stereotype about those. So, uh, but that's not to say that there aren't some, but one way to answer your question is by looking at the actual results. So there is no sex difference in IQ score um, that's reliable. So when you look at large populations of men and women, which turns out there's actually less data than you might want about IQ across populations, because a lot of them are just, they they focus on like, only some small set of of people or like um, it's like gendered on purpose because the reason that these IQ tests are measuring some some of these simple cognitive measures like memory and reaction time and spatial rotation and all that and, and vocabulary is because the idea is that these are the basic building blocks that give rise to the higher level abilities. So like when you're solving a real world problem, it requires your working memory, it requires some level of reasoning and abstraction, it requires... Um, all of these things, much in the same way that like your ability to uh, react quickly to to visual stimuli, like and your strength, your upper body strength, might predict your athletic ability. So, so I think the attempt is really to find the basic uh, abilities that would give rise to the more complex abilities. But that's not to say that that there isn't this bias. I, I think that 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 the bias specifically that you mentioned where we measure things that are easy to measure is is of course true like it's hard to know what we could measure that's hard to measure but um I, it's more of a philosoph- philosophical point i guess it's like there's no reason to think that intelligence is the thing that is captured by these things that are easy to measure yeah no um the question is really have we have we systematically ignored things that would otherwise be captured by the concept intelligence and maybe that is that maybe that is the case i think that there's there's probably a good reason to to think that that's that that's the case um so you know things like so then when people like dismiss because i saw the, the thing that made me think of this is you know the multiple intelligences theory those seem to me to be important elements of intelligence but i totally buy that they've been really hard to measure and so 
you know, it's like a pseudoscience to say, oh, this person is higher in whatever social, intrapersonal or interpersonal intelligence or whatever, because we don't have accurate measures. Of yeah. That. So yeah. I totally buy that it's a pseudoscience, um, how you measure those things. What I don't buy is that those things aren't part of intelligence. Yeah. yeah. So I will say this, um, the people who have gone, uh, there has been decent work on emotional intelligence. And again, you have to like almost just start from scratch and start defining what you mean by emotional intelligence. But my advisor in grad school, the now president of Yale University, just because because that's how I roll, um, uh, was one of the originators of the concept of emotional intelligence. And there are clear ways in which you can measure this stuff. Like the theory of emotional intelligence, at least the most common one, is like that there is there are basic abilities like perceiving emotions in others, um, regulating emotions in yourself and the other and others, um, having the labeling and recognizing and labeling emotions. Um, that all of these things sort of uh, are are predictive of success. And it's true that when you when you do decent measures of this this sort of emotional intelligence it does predict above and beyond iq it does predict success iq is still a more robust predictor of success but but these things do matter whether you call them intelligence or not is almost like a semantic like yeah. whatever um but, but it's what, what i consider sometimes well yeah I think it's fair to say that some of those Howard Gardner, again, separating the question of whether we have good measures of it, like, do I can, like, if I'm thinking, is that person intelligent? I often would include some of those things. I mean, like, yeah. let's just go specifically what they are. Yeah. So, so I think it's important though, like I'll highlight, I said this, that when you do look, there is no gen, there's no sex difference in IQ. So, so much like the, the de deflating nature of, of the justice, the ethics of care, like when people bothered to measure it, like men and women didn't really defer that much on their moral judgment on that, on the Kohlberg test. Um, but even more powerfully here, there is no overall gender difference. Like you, what is there or sex difference? I should say the one that does emerge consistent with what you're saying is, uh, well, somewhat consistent is that, that, uh, reliably women are better at verbal IQ and yeah. reliably men are better at spatial IQ. With both those things, Kohlberg and the, I, I don't think the objection depends on there being gender differences. No, but that's, it's often measures. motivated by the fear that there is a systematic sort of like failure to capture this different ability in women. So oh, you would expect I, I guess the, so that's not, that was not motivating for okay. me. Yeah. yeah, my motivation was more that this is how a guy would define right. intelligence. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, fair yeah. enough. Um, yeah. uh, but, it, you know, vocabulary, I guess, might be, or, or sorry, verbal, just not just vocabulary, just verbal intelligence might actually be stereotypical and, and gendered in that way. And it yeah. is true that, that, you know, little girls start talking from an earlier age. They're, they have better vocabulary like it's all i think that's a very robust like uh phenomenon um and and men on average again because there's plenty of women who could kick my ass i'm sure on spatial reasoning and there's plenty of women who i could kick their ass on on verbal yeah. um but on average that is something that emerges it's just that when you lump them all together it washes out and so you get in general uh difference 
So you're uh, saying that, that women can't be engineers? Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, no, not at all. There's so much wrong with the Google memo. that, that but. All right, well, let's wrap up here. And then when we come back, we'll talk about the really controversial aspects of intelligent research, although everything is... Is, is controversial to some degree, but, um, but especially gender differences, race differences, ethnicity differences. And so, really penis size differences in IQ. Penis size difference. <laughs> Circ- like, are you circumcised? Are you not? <laughs> like, are you a Lakers fan or a Celtics fan? So, um, uh, yeah, right. so, so we'll talk about that next episode. In the meantime, I think you should take an IQ test. I, I yeah i mean like now i'm like feeling really insecure about it yeah me too i'm trying to like rotate like a three-dimensional triangle and i can't figure out how to do it <laughs> just make it, it looks an, the same just make it an equilateral triangle and then and then yeah. you'll, you'll get the. <laughs> all right thanks for joining us thanks to our patreon listeners it looks like you might have given us two episodes yeah. in total rather than just one so we really appreciate it